And uh, we call it Chuao because we wanted to represent the, the high quality product that Chuao represents. The plantation in Venezuela called Chuao produces one of the finest cacaos in the world. Venezuelan, Venezuelan chocolate, best tasting, America needs it, right? Uh, and there was very little in chocolate, honestly, 20 years ago. Uh, very just simple Hershey, not very much movement in the chocolate. You know, the whole mm. culinary movement has evolved in multi directions, but chocolate was one of those. It was main, 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 mainly industrial chocolate, you know. Welcome to the Venezuelan Diaspora Project, where you will find Venezuelan entrepreneurs and change makers that we searched and interviewed to present to you. My name is Jesus Bolivar, also known as Chubeto. So let's get to it. Welcome to a new edition of the Venezuela Diaspora Project. Thank you so much for joining us today. When we have the honor and pleasure to have Michael Antonorsi, who is the chef and master chocolatier of Chuao Chocolatier. Chocolatier, sin la R, chocolatier. <laughs> uh, bienvenido, Michael. Gracias, gracias. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're super happy to have you and thank you for accepting the invitation. So as always, we'll divide the interview in four sections. First, we'll talk about, uh, we'll ask uh, Michael to uh, tell us his story around his journey in when he started his venture. Then we'll go into uh, some advice for startups. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to talk about food. Uh, I really want to talk about food. And then we'll end up with uh, the Venezuelan questions. But before we get started, and this is a surprise, hope, uh, let's do a rapid fire. So I'll give you choices of two things, and then you'll, uh, you, you choose one before you do the intro. That way we get started. So cat or dog? Okay. Uh, dog? Dog or cat? Okay. Bitcoin or dollar? Dollar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Margarita or Los Roques? Los Roques. Oh, that, that one always gives away your yeah. preference. Uh, Ron or whiskey? Whiskey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mac or PC? Mac. Mac iPhone or Android? iPhone. New York or Miami? New York. New York. Uh, I, I, I should put New York, Miami, or San Diego? <laughs> <laughs> San Diego. <laughs> San Diego, claro. Beach or the mountain? I think. Beach. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Aisle or window? Aisle. Would you rather be rich or famous? Rich. <laughs> nice. Pete, Hawaiian pizza or pepperoni? Hawaiian pizza. Hawaiian pizza. Oh, do you like sweet, sweet stuff. Nice. Thank you, Michael. So <laughs> uh, tell us about you and about, and about Char Chocolatier. In what box do I fit now? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, it's going to be a mixed story because it is not only a, a business journey, it's a personal journey also. So. Um, Chihuahua Chocolatier started in 2002, opened the doors um, in San Diego, California. Now, why San Diego, California? Uh, 
When I was uh, I, I, when I finished high school in Venezuela, I went to the United States to study, and I eventually landed in UC San Diego, and I studied biomedical engineering. And as I was, and I studied that because I wanted to study something difficult, and I really want to impress and get some recognition from my parents, which is something that a lot of us do. So after after I finished that, uh, I was 21, finished biomedical engineer, went back to Venezuela, and of course, next thing you do to impress your parents is to get an MBA. So I got an MBA. And started a company with my brother, uh, Richard. I started a company in computer networking and telecommunications. At the beginning, so before... So this is not your first company. This is no, not your no. first company. Nice. I've been an entrepreneur all my life. So I've never really worked for anybody but our own ventures. Mm. So in Venezuela, we started this company called Protocol Sistemas. And uh, we were doing large area networks for the oil industry, banks. And, and you know, before internet. And it was... Ethernet. So it was local area networks and wide area networks. So we did that for a long time. And we also did stuff in, in prepaid telephone, uh, prepaid phone systems. But I always wanted to become a chef. The moment I graduated as a biomedical engineer, all I wanted to do is be a chef. But I would not really tell my father after he paid for school here, which is a lot of money, that I was going to throw away my biomedical engineering that would make him proud and just become a chef. So I never gave him the chance. But I always wanted to do that. So I was in Venezuela, journeying to be able to be a chef. When I, was, when I was finally able to afford myself to go and follow my dream, my dream was to go to France and become a chef in France, in Paris. So I went, I uprooted my family. I had two daughters that were born in Caracas and my wife, and we went to Paris. And uh, I became a chef in Paris in, the, <clears throat> in a very good professional school. So the school was actually, and it's not the Cordon Bleu, but it was, it's called Ferrandi, and it's a school that is, uh, most of the students there are 18 year old or so because it's a technical, it's like a polytechnical school. So I became a chef. My wife did a master's in French art history. And because I went to UCSD and my brother did too, we wanted to come here and start a business. Venezuela, we already kind of closed down uh, and sold out as much as we could. And the situation started changing, but we wanted to come here to San Diego and start a new venture now in the food because I have new tools that I have just uh, was able to acquire in Paris and San Diego because it was our alma mater here and we always felt it was super beautiful here. So we came here and started the business in 2002 and uh, we call it Chuao because we wanted to represent the, the high quality product that Chuao represents, the plantation in Venezuela called Chuao produces one of the finest cacaos in the world. And my whole idea was that we do, we, 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 we build a market front that then can be fed by the cacao of Chuao and then come full circle to the plantation and support in, a, in, a, in, a, in an organic collaborative way, right? Uh, so that they, they who plant and grow the cacao would have access and to, for the benefits too of the market itself in, in the United States. So we started that uh, with that idea. Of course, we all know Venezuela started really crumbling and going in a direction that was not what we intended. And honestly, we, we when we started the company, we wanted to just you know build it and sell it. You know, do the American dream. You know, build the new Starbucks thing, sell it, and go home. You know, we wanted to stay here three, four years. It's been twenty years now, <laughs> and none none of those uh, you know the buy it and sell it and become a millionaire. None of that happened. Uh, actually, we struggled for nine years. We lost money for nine years and uh, it was small, but it was still not, you know, we couldn't even take a salary. So it was very difficult. The good thing that we had some support from the businesses that we ran in Venezuela. So we were able to sustain this adventure. 
But eventually, uh, I was able to, to understand what was wrong with the company. And uh, I, because we were failing in how we executed it, but not in our concept or what we actually delivered to the customers. So when I realized that people were really loving our chocolate and having a moment of joy, I decided that we're going to now really create an intention for the company. And instead of a mission and a vision, I wanted to create an intention. And the intention is to share joy with the world through deliciously engaging chocolate experiences. So that was also a way to eliminate competition because if you sell your product uh, uh, for its features and you're comparing my features against your features, like an Apple iPhone or a Samsung or whatever, it's very tiring because it's all feature driven. It doesn't really loses the whole purpose. And chocolate is such a beautiful thing that I, I wanted to get rid of the whole idea of competition. And uh, as we're here to share joy, uh, we don't have competition. And if somebody else makes chocolate and shares joy, they're partners. So this is kind of like when we started transforming the company. We also Michael, created, yes. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. No, no, I know you want to keep going, but I do want to know, like, why did you pick chocolate? Like, you know, you had this telecom thing in Venezuela. You were a reformed engineer. Obviously, uh, making food was your passion, but why did you specifically choose Chocolate. chocolate was That's there a, like um and i always ask this question was it a there, was there an analytical approach to say the chocolate market is this size and i think the opportunity is x amount of money or was there more, more it was it, it was very intuitive in many ways i i as i my passion is to be a chef and cook i we wanted to do something like that but i didn't really want to build a restaurant a restaurant mm. i was already 38 years old and uh a restaurant is something that's super, super, super hard because you have to work. I work in Paris in a, in a Michelin star restaurant and I would never mm -hmm. see my family. So I realized that that was not really a path I wanted to do. But then we're Venezuelan and the best cacao in the world is grown in Venezuela. We're so used to the best chocolate, you know. I like to say that uh, in Venezuela to, be, to eat a bad chocolate, you would have to import it from somewhere else. <laughs> because if even a, a Savoy uh, or even any kind of a chocolate is industrially made in Venezuela, the moment it's made with the cacao from Venezuela, it already tastes different. So a, a, a Savoy... So, so you thought there was like a different creator just having been able to do Venezuelan chocolate in the US? Yeah, so chocolate was a way to, 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 to be culinary creative, but I didn't mm -hmm. really... And it was so familiar, people would connect immediately with chocolate. So I have the Venezuelan heritage of chocolate my great-grandfather had a cacao plantation called um oh, wow. a in 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 paria and uh this was a long time ago it got lost from depths and now it's a bank probably owns it and it's got 250 families invading it so it's it's all gone but but so we had that kind of there and honestly we came here thinking that we we're going to nail it because venezuelan venezuelan chocolate best tasting america needs it right uh and there was very little in chocolate, honestly, 20 years ago. Uh, very just simple Hershey, not very much movement in the chocolate. You know, the whole mm. culinary movement has evolved in multi directions, but chocolate was one of those. It was main, 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 mainly industrial chocolate, you know, supermarket candy, but not really more sophisticated chocolate. So we wanted to really get into that, 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 that business. There was really no, no business plan analytics, you know, it was more like a passion <laughs> and Heart. it was like, yeah, we started but, but a, seems, in a store. It seems from what you're saying that you saw an opportunity to do a differentiated product just because things here were so industrial, right? And yes, exactly. Like, right. So, mm -hmm. but I, but then you make many mistakes. So, you know, I know that. Uh, yeah. so for instance, uh, one of the things of an entrepreneur is that uh, an entrepreneur is typically so f full of themselves. They are enamored mm -hmm. with their product. They think it's the best, the hardest thing, but they forget that it needs to connect to other people. 
So when we started it, it was all about creative processes. So, so our motto or tagline was unusual, unexpected, and delicious. But I didn't know that American market does not like unusual or unexpected. <laughs> they like delicious, but they don't like Prediction. surprises. Yeah, they right? want to know so exactly they like familiar. What yeah, familiarity. <laughs> so that was changed. So we had to change all that because we started getting too creative. And our names, oh my God, that's a huge mistake. We had names. We were thinking that being Venezuelan was so much fun and we just put names of Venezuelan mm -hmm. origin. So we created a bar called Chinita Nibs from La Chinita Maracaibo Virgin, right? Why? Because our mm -hmm. sales director is from Maracaibo and he said, oh, and we thought we were really funny, Chinita Nibs. And then we had bonbons, bonbons called Cambur. Uh, so the Americans would say Camber, you know, they couldn't really figure out, <laughs> but it became a name. Uh, a, a bonbon called Morocho, uh, another one called Mulato. And then we didn't realize that we were actually politically correct, not correct in a way, right? <laughs> so I don't know, just, just Parchita. We still have, you know, we had a bonbon called Parchita. Now we had to change it to passion, sweet passion. So we learned because our approach to it was so Venezuelan and so for us that we were missing the point that the clientele needs to understand what you're doing, right? So, you know, and, yeah. and in chocolate, we could do that, right? So we did have passion fruit chocolate. We did have all those more nuances of the Venezuelan flavor, but we had to put names that were understandable, right? So that's one of the learnings too. So you said that you spent nine years sort of where you felt was you were not succeeding. What was the thing that changed? that the big change to introduce nine years after nine so, years. So after nine years, uh, I decided to change our branding. And mm -hmm. I started understanding that people uh, were connecting with an experience. They wanted to feel the joy that the chocolate brings them. And so we moved into a branding more like this, for instance. Uh -huh. so this is our latest bar that we're just launching. It's called Carrot Cake. So very familiar for the American palate, mm -hmm. but super delicious. Tastes just like carrot cake, right? So. But now the branding is a delicious mouthwatering picture, a name that is noticeable and it is understandable and, and everything started evolving. So for instance, we had a bar called Panko. Panko is the Panko breadcrumbs, right? So as a chef, full of myself, I thought everybody would understand Panko. And it said Panko and it was a golden wrapper with some cacao pots and that's it. So who's gonna grab that, right? So we changed it to this beautiful look. I actually have it here. Uh, that has two chocolate croissants on top of each other. Oh, wait, it's here. And, uh, and we changed the name to Salted Chocolate Crunch. Mm, so now simple. it's like this, right? Ooh. Right? So, so just an anecdote on marketing. Uh, we changed it to Salted Chocolate Crunch with this picture. We changed all our packaging to have beautiful, delicious, mouth-watering, really? you know, uh, things, you know, like honeycomb and all that. So we changed the packaging, changed the naming. Salted Chocolate Crunch came about. I asked a salesperson when we had all the new packaging to go to a supermarket and change all the old product for new product just to see how it starts turning. And when he walked in, a lady saw and said, hey, I love the Salted Chocolate Crunch. And he's like, oh, thank you so much, you know. Um, uh, I'm glad. And, and he was going to say more things. And she said, oh, by the way, I hated the panko. So, <laughs> so uh, she never even wow. asked if we changed the recipe. She just said, I love the salted chocolate crunch and I hated the panko. Same bar with a different shirt, different name. So the power of marketing oh, really? is super it was the important. Same exact chocolate? Same exact same... bar, same wow. exact chocolate. Two extreme emotions, hate and love. Yeah. Just so, because so of the way it's packaging, packaging matters a lot. And, a lot. And, branding, and naming. Right? Naming, connect, wow. connection. You have to connect. If you're full of yourself, mm. 
you're actually alienate, alienate, alienate oh, that's a good one. Alienating, yeah. Alienating so, other people. Michael, so there's a, a, a dodge, right? That you could have the best product in the world, but if you don't have distribution, you're, you're sort of dead in the water. Um, yeah. So how did the distribution model evolve? And what is the distribution model that you, you that you currently have for, for your product? So, so it's, uh, this distribution is very, very difficult and very, very expensive mm -hmm. in the United States. Uh, and it is mm -hmm. true. You need to, if you want to be in retail stores, you have to have distribution. But the distributors know the power they have. So it is actually quite tricky and it requires a lot of attention because uh, there is a, a, a tradition that when I'm a distributor, let, let's say a client, Whole Foods or whatever, CVS or Ralph's, whatever, you know, Publix, uh, they decide to bring your product in to their shelf. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to buy it directly from you. They're going to buy it through a distributor. So you have to load the distributor with product and the distributor now feeds the retailers. But if the retailer discontinues your product for any reason, then you have to buy it back with the margins oh, wow. that the distributor takes. So if the distributor buys for five and sells it for six to the retailer that then sells it for 12, you have to buy it back from the distributor at six. So wow. it, is, it is very difficult. It could be very expensive. And it is hard to keep it honest too because it is, the distributor makes money no matter what if you sell or not your product. So so you, you really need to be ready for that and you really need to put your eyes on, uh, on the channel so that you don't get stuck with fees and chargebacks and stuff that are going to really break yeah. your necks. And have you, and you know, speaking of like moving forward to the, to the now or the present, um, how, has, how have you managed and, and sort of um, adapted to the COVID environment? Has it impacted you positively, negatively? Um, it is. I stick it has, to the distribution, right? Because a lot of people have moved to direct to consumer. Like yeah, how yeah, have yeah. You managed? Well, you know, we had in our in our evolution as a company. You know, we had the first mm -hmm. nine years kind of trouble. Then we recuperated after we changed this. We actually, uh, you know, grew one hundred twenty-seven percent. We recuperated all our losses, everything in about three years. And then we wow. got arrogant. But then we got arrogant. <laughs> and then we thought we were indestructible. And then we started growing too fast. And then that started crashing mm -hmm. down again. So then we had to shrink and shrink and readapt, right? So then, and we did this just before COVID hit. So we were super mm -hmm. lean when COVID hit. And then, of course, COVID hits. And we also always had the strategy to go online, business online, not all of it, but a big chunk of it so that we can go direct to consumer. And it was never really working. We were just trotting away on a website that just sold, you know, so much, nothing really re relevant. But mm -hmm. with COVID, we grew 300%. And wow. in just one year, we just tripled on the it's, on the on the website presence. Only online, yeah, because everybody's sitting at home, wow. clicking away. Everybody wants some, you know, feel some joy and have some chocolate, and and it was wonderful for us because then it pushed us to really learn. It's a complete new set of complexities to be able to put so many packages through, and uh, uh, you know, we would do in the pre previous years we would do three, five, six hundred packages on like Valentine's week or whatever. Now we're doing this a daily base, right? So it, it was completely complicated. It was very complicated for us, but it was wonderful because then it put us in another layer uh, uh, with the web business, which now we need to fine tune and, and you know, correct. And the, the other business, which was the retail, kind of some of it really crashed a little bit because you know we have uh, like American Airlines is a very big client of us, and uh, there were no flying. And you know the cheese platter has our honeycomb bar, which is this one here. Mm. And and of course they, they for six months it was completely shut down. So and we have like Michaels, you know, very good client of ours, that are not traditional food, and they were all closed. So we did get a big hit, 
Uh, and now it's beginning to track again as things open, but it was an uh, in incredible lesson. Uh, it really, really helped us also understand our base, our, our structure, our foundation. So now we're ready to grow again because now we're down to our core foundation uh, as a company. What's the thing that you're most proud of? Like if you had to say there's one, one product or one accomplishment in the past uh, 18, 19 years. I'm honestly, I'm, uh, what I'm most proud of is the, the feeling and the vibe that, uh, you can breathe and you can feel in the company. You know, I'm so proud of, uh, all the employees, all the workers in production, they're like family. So I come and hug them and, you know, and <laughs> say hi and, and they're all, and so it's just like, so I feel so good when I go there. And in many ways, I was created by that. Many, maybe it's that Venezuelan kind of a vibe. We're so friendly as a, as a population. And we're always like in everybody's face and, and but caring, you know, and, and joking. So, so the, the Venezuelan spirit is really something that is super charming and attractive in so many ways. And, and, you know, we have mostly Mexican population in production. We have about 30 people there in production, 40 people. Uh, but they're just wonderful. And, and, and they just love the Venezuelan nuance. Is it Spanish only at the at the factory? It's Spanish mostly, yeah. There's a few <laughs> English speakers, but you know, it's it's like ninety percent Spanish and and it's Mexican Spanish. So another thing is that Venezuelans speak really fast Spanish. So mm. when I speak with them super fast because I'm excited, they don't they don't understand <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, what is one failure that you that you think was key? And I think you mentioned one, but what is one failure that you're proud of, or one failure that that um or one learning? um that you think was pivotal in in the past 20 years and you mentioned packaging was one. yeah well you know um i think it all goes in hand with your own personal evolution you know i think the the misalignment of objectives and your core essence can be very strenuous right so if you are like at the beginning if you think you're going to be that and but it doesn't really lie with your core values you know like if you're working just for profit or you're working for growth but that's not really what you want to do, then you're always in stress, right? Uh, the moment you can line those up mm. uh, and your relationship with all those factors really lines up with yourself, then you are super happy. So, you know, uh, we suffered a lot while we were, you know, because we put the cart in front of the horses really quickly and it was difficult, so emotionally. But then when we started getting better, then we got arrogant and that was another learning. So you have to really observe and be able to to react correctly when you when you realize that you're just you're just... You know, you are, you are the best uh, measuring rod here. You know, if you don't feel happy, if you don't feel joyful, if, you don't, if you're trying to hopefully get sick so that you don't need to go to work, <laughs> you need to change something. You know, it's not working. So, so it, it's lined up with joy. And, and honestly, once you do stuff that you enjoy, it's not work any longer. It's actually play. So, you know, having a lot of fun. All right, let's move on to advice. So um, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs when they're starting out um, face this, uh, in many cases, you know, how do I get started? And one question is, you know, do I need to seek outside finance? Can I bootstrap? And so uh, could you shed a light a bit on, on how you guys got started and, and sure. did you have to take outside finance or did you just get like, how, 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 how so, did that happen? So we, we started, because uh, we were doing businesses before, uh, we started with what they call the three F's, you know, family, friends, and fools. Uh, so, so with these three F's, we were able to have a, but it was all friends, you know, like, Hey, you want to do it? That's all. Yeah. I give you a little bit here, a little bit there. 
And we did this and, and we really uh, shouldered it across without any outside financing, outside meaning, outside their friends and friends fools and family. And family. And, uh, and so, have, so how did you convince them? Did you, was it more of like, well, you because know, we had, because you know, some of them have participated in other businesses with us, you know, they trusted and they trust. wanted to, and some of them, they just trust. wanted to have a little stake on a chocolate company. You know, you know, I have one that says <laughs> the only reason why I invested is so that I have something to say when I'm flying on an airplane and I can talk about chocolate to other people. <laughs> And that's so, a, that's a great one. I think I think getting people to identify with your values and, and not only yeah. making money, right? It's about being part of something uh, special. Yeah. So you know, it, it is always tricky when you're looking for somebody else's money because that comes yeah. with expectations, right? So and and many times there are expectations about return of investments, and that can create so much pressure that you're no longer free to really move around and create, right? Mm -hmm. So now you have to respond to someone which I have nothing against responding to someone, but you know, sometimes if the values don't align and then, then the tension comes, but sometimes yeah. you can't, you can't do anything and you have to just accept it, but you have to make sure that whoever is financing you lines up with your values, right. And has a relationship with money that is similar to yours. If they're super greedy and they really want a return and some, for instance, you can get somebody that wants to just put money and sell the company in three years. And, but maybe mm -hmm. you don't, right. So then don't do that. You have to really align up. So you want to get an exit and the, the money coming in wants an exit. And then you know that in three years, you're pouring your blood and love into it. In three years, you're selling your blood and love and it's gone, right? And if you're doing a company that has your name or it's very personal, it's much more difficult, right? So, so uh, that's one of the things that you need to be uh, very careful with uh, inviting. And even if you're doing already well and then you think you want to scale up and you need investment, be sure that the interest uh, line up, right? Don't do something that 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 collides with your intention because uh, that creates an impossible stress. And another yeah, thing that, is also no, as an entrepreneur, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, please, please. No, another thing as an entrepreneur too, again, as I said, don't be full of yourself, right? I know you're rock, I know you're amazing, but you know, you need to have a clientele that needs to connect with you. Otherwise you're just not, you're gonna sit alone in, in, in the party. So, so <laughs> pay attention to what people need. You know, they say customer is always right and all that, but you know, you need to just be balanced out in that. And, and another thing is endurance. It takes much longer than you expect. Mm. So just stick yeah, to it. That, you know, it's been 20 years. It's been, it's been 18 years for us. So what is the so final advice uh, question? Uh, what would you advise a young chap who's looking into, uh, you know, how to find his or her um, calling within the industry? Well, you know, uh, or if you, yeah. another, and I'm going to frame it differently. What would you tell yourself when you were an aspiring chef about, you know, what's upcoming and, and how to navigate the, the food world? Well, again, be clear in what you want, right? Because, uh, <laughs> and it is very difficult sometimes. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, you just need to be perseverant, be inventive. Don't stick to the traditional things, you know, uh, be creative, put, put your true gifts out. Don't be afraid of being yourself because if you're doing things that are similar to others or doing things for other reasons that are not necessarily coming from you, you're not going to go anywhere. You know, the, the, it's a very competitive environment right now. So, but if you have your own imagination and you can deliver a good tasting, very imaginative experience, you're in the right track. So, you know, but learn a lot, you know, first, maybe you start working at restaurants, try to weave your way into good chefs that have super mm. clever and super into very, has a lot of integrity and a lot of process. So learn the process, learn all that stuff before you start throwing yourself out into making your own restaurant. You know, I know we all want to have an arepera, 
and 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 they and they're amazing but but mm. you know it's a lot of work so you want to make sure that you have mm. thought about all the things so that your arepera can be joyful every day for you and you can deliver that joy through the food because that love goes into the food that you make and people receive it when they eat the arepa it's like well this is the best arepa because it's made like that it's not made by somebody completely disconnected i just learned how to do this and here it goes you know you have to really translate the passion behind uh, uh that food a love that was a poured in so that the consumer connects and gets a beautiful experience love it love it all right thanks thank you for that uh, advice uh hopefully those who are listening uh now are thrust into an entrepreneurial uh, <laughs> path <laughs> so let's uh, let's move on to um uh one question on the future of food like if you were to you know uh three predictions in the next 20 years of trends that you're seeing it could be in the chocolate uh, world, in the in the cacao world, in the direct-to-consumer world, in the U.S. Three predictions uh, and for things that you think will happen in the next 20 years. Uh, well, uh, definitely uh, a better uh, supply chain. You know, starting from you know most likely organic, you know, non-GMOs. Like really, because we the, the whole country needs to heal, right? Uh, physically too. So you need to go down to the sourcing. So you get something that is done correctly, right? Organic, no pesticides, no, no cut corners. Uh, get the consumer has to get, learn to pay a little bit more for something that's really authentically better for them. You know, you buy a shirt for $150, but then you're like skimping out on stuff that you actually put inside of your body. So you want to make sure you buy, so you they're going to, they're going to buy. You think the trend, the trend of organic will continue to grow? It's gonna, it's gonna overtake everything eventually. And also the local thing in many ways, you know, people supporting because the more village type mentality, because mm -hmm. this globalization kind of has taken the, you know, everybody's very concerned about the world, you know, and the, the, you know, the whole global warming and climate change mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So, so buying the food that is sourced somehow local, there's a lot of connection there. I know I'm in California. I know this is very much uh, uh, more clear here than maybe if you're in the Midwest. Southern California, Diego, uh, Southern right? California. So, so, but it's going to it's going to eventually also go there. And a lot of regional areas already have more access to their local stuff, right? So, so local, so organic, local. Uh, definitely sugar consciousness is going to grow a lot because mm -hmm. you know this country has put sugar in everything. So that's going to be a lot more uh, uh, a concern. And, and just overall healthy eating is not just going to be a privilege to the yoga teachers. It's going to be something for every, yeah. everyone, every family. They're going to need, you know, lunch boxes. Schools are going to also invest in better food. So it's just going to improve. There's a great opportunity in that sense. Great, great. Uh, thank you for that. All right, let's move on to the last section of uh, this uh, time with uh, Michael. Uh, tell us about, so we're going to talk about Venezuela and these questions are about, uh, your being Venezuela. So what are things that you think happened while you grew, were growing up or things that you learned that helped you in your, uh, venture in the U S if any, well, no, no, many, you know, honestly, I think, uh, Venezuela creates sort of, and unfortunately in a way, but, uh, creates a mentality of survival of resourcefulness, right? You know, even when I lived there, uh, it was a, a Venezuela much more, uh, um, you know, with a lot more available stuff. You still had to be always resourceful, right? You had to find ways of getting things, right? So, so we are innately, innately resourceful uh, and incredibly optimistic and positive. So 
you know, the good humor of the Venezuelans helps a lot. So that has, you know, I'm, I'm a super positive, optimistic person. And, and there is nothing that we would say, oh, that's, that, that lies beneath me. I'm, I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to do that. So we, we, we do have that, uh, that grit, you know, uh, that many places don't have. So, and I know that this whole new wave of, of uh, this new wave of, of migration that's come uh, in the past years, you know, a lot of people had suffered a lot. So they're ready to do anything and they're prepared and, and they have human traits. Um, we are just much more personable than pretty much mm. any Latin American country. And, and you can see it everywhere. You know, Venezuelans are louder. They dance. You know, we have spirit that is really shines through and everybody loves it. It's infectious. So that is a super good quality that we need to protect and need to, and we can use because it makes us fit in in society and stick out in a good way and, and relate to other people. Yeah. What are things that you uh, have left behind and relearned from from being Venezuelan? Things that I've left behind. Um... I'll give you one. I, I, I said, I've said this one in the past. Uh, to me, being on time. Like I left behind this notion of like, you know, I'll meet you at two, but then I arrive at three. I left uh. that one behind. I, now I'm <laughs> on time. And I value being on time, which is something yeah. that I did not learn in Venezuela for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, you know, honestly, I've, I, I, I'm, I'm Virgo, so I'm actually very clock oriented and my, mm. I'm half German too. So I, I really no, like to be go. on time, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think uh, uh, maybe I have lost that the tolerance of other people being not on mm. time. You know, in Venezuela, you kind of get used to it, right? Ah, oh, it's okay. We start at two and then you, don't, you know that lunch is going to be at four or five, whatever. Uh, and uh, now I am on the other side because I am time driver. You know, if somebody's late, I get uh, very, uh, in a way, upset. I plan it to be on time and everything. So before, there's nothing you could do. <laughs> I want to yeah, we said no, the dinner was at eight. Okay, they'll get here at nine. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, second to last. Tell us about the time, your time in Venezuela. Where did you grow up? What was it like? How was that upbringing when you were uh, a kid? Okay, I, I grew up in, uh, in Santa Paula, in Caracas, and up in the hill. So, and I went to school in the Colegio Humboldt, which is a German school right next to the Avila Mountain. And uh, it was terrible because I would have to wake up at 5.30 in the morning, uh, pitch dark, and then maybe go with the bus or with somebody to drive us and arrive there for 7 o'clock because school starts at 7.10, which was ridiculously early but i grew up in a biling bilingual environment you know german and spanish and uh, it was fun because of that you know we had access to multiple cultures and that was wonderful and and then growing up in santa paula where it was a brand new urban area you know bicycling playing in the fields playing soccer on the streets whatever you know a lot of outdoor time that that was wonderful uh, for me uh, and it, it kept us from getting in trouble and Way back then, of course, you know, there was really not so much inter um, technology. So it was very much about play, 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 play. So, you know, that was wonderful. I had very strict parents that wanted me to be very uh, good in school, which I was not. So there was some punishments uh, involved in my playing, but uh, that's just natural how, how we just disobey. <laughs> but it was wonderful, you know. I, and funny enough, though, when I came to school here in UCSD, uh, I actually learned to so dance. So you did also. college at UCSD, right? Was yeah. that your bachelor's? I, I, okay, I left... I left Venezuela with 16 years old when I graduated high school mm -hmm. and I, I started 17 college. 
And I actually learned to dance salsa in San Diego. Wow. And I love salsa dancing. So I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a super salsa dancer. So, so, but yeah, because you have it inside, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, so, you know, that was just kind of like how I grew up. And of course in Venezuela, you know, going to the beach, going to Los Roques, going to Morrocoy all the time, you know, trying to go, we had a the Jeep club. So we go in Jeeps to the Amazon. We go to many places, uh, that are unheard of, you know, difficult to get to. And so that I miss that pr deeply, you know. Yeah, the the all wheel drive and the yeah. outdoor culture certainly something that uh, that I also treasure. Um, Michael, thank you so much for your time. And so I'm going to give you uh, just the last question. Just if there's if there's anything that you would like to tell the Venezuela diaspora, um, just any message uh, that you would like to convey. This is that time. Okay. Well. I like them, the entrepreneurs, of course. <laughs> entrepreneurs. I like them to know that you know there's great opportunities here. You know, uh, don't don't imagine things beyond. Uh, don't don't fantasize. Just be very very honest and clear, and hardworking. Uh, the diaspora should eventually become this kind of like connective tissue between Venezuelans. I think there's a lot of support can happen, uh, and uh, you know. Uh, don't don't get too hung up with the cultural differences. Um, mm -hmm. Learn to appreciate and, and and be grateful for the culture that's receiving you here, and uh, and don't you know we are we're Venezuelans. You know we we're adaptable, but we are always going to be Venezuelans. We're always going to dance salsa. We're always going to eat arepas. We're always going to do that, and and that's infectious. And somebody told me one thing that is super important when I was here at the beginning. I, first year or two years when I was here, I was feeling really the rub negatively. I, I couldn't understand the American people. And I went home uh, on a vacation. I was talking to my friend and I told him about it. You know, we went to the parties and this and dance and eat and do and share. And the Americans go to bed early and whatever it is that, you know, you want to generalize. But he told me something really important. He said, don't change, change them. And I thought, wow, because you're, you're thinking that you need to like, you know, make yourself dim yourself down to a more of a Europeanized or Americanized type of lifestyle, but no, change them. And I have. And so now the parties last 10 hours here. Every, all my <laughs> friends drink whiskey and rum. Uh, you know, all these things happen. They have been improved in a way because now they have more of a livelihood, a social aspect that they didn't have before. And so I really thank my friend that said, you know, don't change, change them. And if you nice, can nice. change your community, bring all those gifts and change your community so, so that they become happier and a little Venezuelan. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for your time. Um, and again, Michael from Trois Chocolatier, thank you so much for joining us in uh, Venezuela Diaspora Project. If you're an entrepreneur who is in the U.S. and would like to be involved in the project, be interviewed, please reach out. And if you want to reach out to Michael, reach out to Michael for any questions, I'll put his contact info in Twitter. Where, where can we find you? Twitter? Which social media um, do, you, do you have? Uh, email. Email. All right. I'll yes. put your email so that uh, we can reach out to you. Um, and thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us and for the awesome chocolate that, that we get to spend. By the way, I didn't tell you, my favorite chocolate is the one that has the potato chips. Oh, the potato chip chocolate. Yeah. Potato so Do you have it? Oh my God. That's so good. I met, I met you through that chocolate. I picked it up in, <laughs> in uh, nearby here in Oakland. And I couldn't believe uh, that it was a Venezuelan chocolate when I saw the package. Uh, yeah. It blew me away. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tube, for this interview. And good luck, everybody out there. <laughs>